In this episode, I visit with Randy Sorrells, co-founder of the Sorrells Law Firm. Randy has been practicing law in Houston, Texas for quite some time and recently founded his firm during the pandemic. We talk about that. We talk about his use of social media and his both professional, racial, and gender diversity in his new law firm. I know you will enjoy this episode. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox back for another episode. And today you are in for a treat because I'm in for a treat. And I get to visit with a friend I've known for a long time, Randy Sorrells. Randy, first of all, uh, welcome to the podcast. And thank you so much for taking the time to visit with me today. Oh, thanks for the invitation and excited to be here. So, Randy, um, the reason I wanted to to have you on a pod is uh, you started a new law firm during the pandemic, uh, which I have to say was one gutsy move. But before we get to that, could you tell the audience a little bit about your professional background? Sure. Uh, a little bit about me. My father was in the military, so we moved around a lot. And he retired here when I was a junior in high school in here being Houston, Texas. Uh, I played soccer at Houston Baptist University or HBU, then went straight to South Texas College of Law. And from there, I went to start to work at Fulbright and Jaworski doing mostly insurance defense practice and worked there for about three years and got to try a bunch of cases Then went over to one of the more established plaintiff's firms. Uh, in the city called Abraham Watkins. It had a bunch of names before then, uh, but it really is an old established firm, became a partner at a pretty young age and became managing partner at a very young age and managed the firm for, oh, probably 25 years or so. And uh, through a series of very fortunate events, I uh, uh, got to start a law firm with my wife here this year, which is 2021. So um, you're a little bit uh, behind me in starting the practice of law, but um, uh, I met you actually way back when you were uh, at Fulbright, and uh, I always thought Fulbright was a great training ground. You mentioned getting to try a bunch of cases, and that was certainly the reputation of the firm back then. Uh, But I wanted to ask, what were kind of a couple of your top experiences you got out of both Fulbright uh, and then moving over, uh, as we would say, on the defense side to the dark side and uh, doing uh, God's work in the plaintiff's bar for uh, 20 years. Well, at Fulbright, of course, we were defending clients who had been sued. And and one thing I learned that all of my clients, they, they said, you know, Randy, if you'll put me on the stand, the jury will believe me and we're going to win the case. And of course, coming on the plaintiff's side, my clients basically say the same thing and someone's got to lose. So the first thing, you know, we figure out is, uh, who can tell the best story with the facts in front of them? And got to learn that on the defense side, did medical malpractice defense, which was uh, a real treat over there. And the firm at Fulbright had a small insurance defense docket. So in three years, I tried 19 cases and got to really understand the ability to talk to juries. And then when I went over to the plaintiff side, um, handled a lot of small cases, which often go to trial. So I tried a lot of small cases. And as you get older, in the plaintiff's docket, you hopefully get better cases, and uh, you've honed your skills appropriately. Uh, became board certified in two areas, uh, tried a bunch of cases, and then started to get active in the community, uh, in the bar community. And you know, my name got around, and people started to send business, and we've been off and running ever since. Randy, I probably should have started with uh, South Texas College of Law because when you attended, they had a reputation as a great training ground for trial lawyers. One, did is that was, did you find that to be true when you were there? And then how did that help you when you uh, came out and started with, really at that time, 
one of the top three firms in Houston. Well, it was a super big help because I was active in the National Mock Trial Program. And when I came out and, and joined Fulbright and Jaworski, and you're right, it was, uh, it was and still is a powerhouse that employs a lot of very smart lawyers from very smart law schools. And they had an, a, uh, an active litigation training program very early on, right when you start. So I was, my classmates included people from Harvard and Virginia and Vanderbilt, really great uh, uh, men and women, and uh, the trial skills were uh, coming right out of the bat. Well, uh, myself and another South Texas grad uh, got to set our skills up against the rest. And after about the first week or so, uh, Carmody Baker, who was my my colleague in law school, and I were pretty much the first calls that our classmates made to us to say, "How do you do this uh, in the mock trial world?" And that gave us a, a chance to develop some great friends and and bonds that have lasted ever since, and also gain respect because South Texas College of Law, which I love and I'm on the board there, it's not Harvard. Uh, but you know what? That uh, courtroom is a great equalizer uh, and, and levels the playing field and doesn't care where you went to law school. It, it cares what your skills are in the courtroom. Well, I'm now an adjunct professor at South Texas College of Law, so we'll have to visit on that sometime now that I know you're a board member. Um but you, you did start a law firm with your wife during the pandemic. And I have to say kudos to you for doing that. Um, I thought it was a pretty gutsy move. I would assume you planned it out for some time. But you, could you tell us the process of starting a law firm? Sort of what's that like? Well, so it, it was somewhat planned out, but then very fortuitous. So, uh, you know, I was president of the state bar a couple of years ago, and I got to meet a lot of lawyers and a lot of judges. And there was an opportunity to leave the firm I'd been at for a long time and join outside of the city firm and start a Houston office. And that was in January. And uh, we were called to trial, an in-person jury trial on January 15th to pick a jury. Uh, that case involved the son of Roger Clements, a baseball player, and the godson of Roger Clements. The godson also, his father was a major league baseball player. And so we were, we were really decided to stop talking to folks. We, we had to leave or we'd left at the end of last year and, and stop talking to the folks that we were going to consider joining to focus on the trial. And then the trial got pushed back from June, January 15th to January 22nd for some COVID reasons. And then jury selection ultimately started on January 26th. So I would have been ready by January 15th, but I was super ready by January 26th. And then the trial didn't start till February 1st. So I was as ready for that trial as I've ever been with just so much extra preparation time. So we tried an in-person uh, jury trial uh, against a, a local bar here, and the offer was about $125,000 going into the trial. We had demanded a million dollars. It was live streamed and because it was a high profile case. There were several thousand people that watched the trial. Great uh, baseball stars testified and the jury ended up awarding us about $3.24 million. And so it was a, basically, as someone said, a week-long advertisement of trial skills uh, by my wife and our team and myself. And, and when we finished the trial, my wife said, and this is her, why do we want to consider joining someone else? Let's just start our own firm. So she and I decided to do that. Uh, my wife is a Hispanic female, big, also former big firm lawyer, former Supreme Court of Texas briefing attorney, very smart. And I thought it was a good idea. It would just be the two of us. We'd, you know, slow down a little bit and enjoy the spoils of our victory and 
suddenly the phone started ringing and it didn't, it didn't stop and it hasn't stopped since. So I think one of the things we're going to talk about is how we decided to grow a firm of diverse, uh, talented and uh, multidimensional lawyers. And that really leads into the next couple of points I wanted to visit with you about. Um, I don't know if I had left Houston before you started your firm, but it really didn't matter because of your social media outreach. You announced you were starting a firm. You announced when you started the firm. You've allowed us to follow your progress on social media. You've talked about uh, the people you've brought on board. Uh, But I wanted to start with the social media component because I really have not seen a firm in Texas use social media as aggressively as you, your wife, and the Sorrells firm. Really, what was the the genesis of that, and, and what has been that experience for the firm? Well, it is, a, uh, you know, I have a number of friends on Facebook, which is our biggest social media, and we have uh, Twitter and Instagram also. But on Facebook, where we're most active, you know, I probably have close to, and I know because at 5,000, it turns off close to 5,000 friends. And I've got most of those friends through my travels with the State Bar of Texas. So most of those people, I'm going to guess more than 95 percent are lawyers um, many whom I met. It's not just a social uh, connection of like here and uh, lots of good friends along the way. And people say, you know, especially in COVID to get out the word what's going on on a minute by minute basis. You can use social media. Uh, I enjoy promoting other people. I've had a great career and plan to have another long career ahead of that. But I also have young lawyers I brought in that I want them to have the opportunity to have great careers. And uh, some of the people we brought in have different backgrounds than what is typical and traditional, but all have, you know, one thing in common, which is um, they're already either great lawyers or, or they're great for their age, for sure. So it's not simply kind of action shots of you in trial. I mean, you've posted orders uh, on social media and for a geek like me, it really doesn't get any better than that. But uh, it's really the breadth and scope of how you use social media that struck me. Um, Really, uh, it almost seems like we have a, I don't want to say a daily insight, but a, we get to visit with the Sorrells firm on a regular basis. Would that be fair? It is, because uh, one of the downsides of being uh, president of the bar is people think it's your retirement job. And after that, you just kind of uh, go to the pastures. But that's not the case. You know, you spend a couple of years with the bar. You try to do as best you can for the lawyers of Texas. But then you've got to get back to work. And that's what I wanted to make sure people knew. Uh, that that uh, trial being live streamed and so many people watching it knew we were back to work. And uh, now the phone rings you know, quite often with new business of people saying, hey, I saw what you're doing on social media. You know, I'd like to consider sending you a case. Uh, would you uh, consider paying a referral fee? And of course, we pay referral fees. And that starts a relationship. I think we pay very generous referral fees and and. Uh, we work with lawyers to the extent they want us to work with them. Some of them want to work side by side, which is great. Some of them want to just call and say, here's a client. Will you take care of it? And, you know, we try to make it a point to keep our word, to work hard and to to get the best possible result for each client. But to be honest with everybody, no one is going to walk away from our firm saying that we weren't true to our word. Even if it hurts us financially, we're making that commitment to try to do the best we can for the client and the lawyers who send us business. We're going to have a quick word from our sponsor, and we'll be right back with more from Randy Sorrells.
And I'd like to pick up on the second point, and you raised it, the diversity of the firm. And what has struck me is you have racial diversity, you have gender diversity, you have ethnic diversity, you may have religious diversity, I don't know it, uh, but you also have uh, different career diversity. And that's one of the things that really struck me. You have a lot of young lawyers who uh, had uh, another profession before, either before they went to law school or they went to law school while they were working. I was wondering if maybe you could talk about that. Was that a, a conscious effort? I assume the kind of racial diversity was, but uh, you've got a, really some interesting talent on the team now. It was. You know, one of my first hires was a former contract lawyer um, who was a, a uh, of mine who was a very did a great job, a white male. But my wife, being a Hispanic female, and there's not a lot of them, said, you know, let's not go down to the all white male firm and just me. So we next called a Hispanic female who is an LGBTQ uh, a diverse candidate as well, who speaks Spanish who comes from a very humble background. Her, her mother actually cleans one of my former partner's houses still today. It was just an eager go-getter. So we have, my wife's bilingual. We had two lingual lawyers, two males, two females. Well, my wife said, hey, we can do this even better. And so the next person we reached out to, and, and we reached out to these, uh, to these first three, was a, a nurse who was an African-American. No, he's, not, he's an African-American, but he's from Africa. He's from Kenya who also got an MBA, so a registered nurse with an MBA who rose to the ranks of a CEO of a hospital and then got his law degree. And we have a big medical malpractice presence already, and adding him to this to the team really uh, upped our profile, and I like working with nurses. So uh, we have someone who is black. The next person uh, was an engineer because we do a lot of products liability. I'd known him for about 10 years. And he called me and said, hey, I see what you're building there. Do you have a home for me? Well, as a matter of fact, we do. And he's also African-American and from southeast Texas, so he knows the Beaumont region. And then uh, the, the next uh, round after that was a female who had been a pharmacist and pharmacy manager for 20 years. And then she decided to go to law school and was representing hospitals and doctors on the defense side. And uh uh, she reached out to me and said, you know, it's interesting what you're building over there. And we talked for a little while and she said, that sounds wonderful. I think I could do plaintiff's work. And she uh, brings her pharmacy expertise to our medical malpractice docket. And, and the other thing I do about social media, I don't say, call me, I'll take your case. I'll say, call me or whoever you're comfortable with, our nurse, our engineer or our pharmacist. We're all a team over here. Well, we put that team together and that created some pretty good um, synergy where more people were calling. And they said, this isn't, a, you know, just a picture. He's getting high quality people. And so the next person we hired was a Vietnamese American who uh, has a lot of uh, commercial real estate, probably commercial litigation background. And I'm board certified in that area, too. So he came on. Uh, uh, and that was a real uh, treat. Um, he's big in the Vietnamese and his wife is big in the Chinese community. And uh, then the most recent one uh, was just a, a real gift to get uh, the next white male. But he's got his own diversity because he went to medical school first and practiced medicine for about 20 years before he went to law school, then defended doctors and hospitals 
and did plaintiff's work, mass tort work, pharmaceutical work. So he rounds out our medical malpractice team, which consists of a doctor lawyer, nurse lawyer, pharmacist lawyer, and me, who have tried as many medical malpractice cases as anybody, uh, certainly my age. So it's been a, a great experience and, and team to build. Randy, what's, uh, what's it like to try a case during the pandemic? You know, and I'm getting ready for another trial in October. And, you know, upon reflection of the first trial, I don't think I, I don't think I prepared any differently other than I mentioned I had more time to prepare. But one thing is masks and face shields. Masks, of course, is what we all wear. Face shields is those plastic, clear plastic face shields. And, you know, the expression of the individual, whether it's a lawyer, the witness or the juror or the judge is important. And so one of the things we have to adjust to is and it's not going to go away anytime soon is how do we adjust to reading expressions of people wearing masks? Can we get down to face shields? Can we keep our voices loud because your face shield and your mask muffles your voice? And can you get jurors to understand that in this time of a lot of despair? And there is I think most of us now know somebody who knows somebody who died of COVID, uh, what true uh, isolationism is and, and suffering and mental anguish is, as you know, many people have feared for their life over something that they can't see. And we try to uh, correlate that to people who are suffering injuries, and that's what mental anguish is about. So we kind of use that as a guiding post to people now better understand mental anguish. They now understand better mental anguish is a better way to say that. Randy, I, I recall you also prepared for a virtual trial that was uh, put on hold or, or postponed. And in part of your sharing on social media, you really uh, showed us how the tech, technical, the tech solutions you had brought and the technology we're going to use to try to recreate a trial but in the virtual setting. And I wanted to ask, use that to ask you, do you really think the technology that all of us have had to get used to over the past 18 months or so has really helped the practice of law. Well, it certainly made it more efficient. And I know there are some judges who are going to require in-person hearings, but all of us who do this on a regular basis know that uh, often a half a day or a full day or travel days can be eaten up for a 10 to 15 minute hearing. And I think that we practitioners would prefer the judges to recognize that and understand that uh, we can get the same ruling with properly briefed motions, properly presented uh, evidence, not in front of a jury um, on Zoom as we can in person. So I know there's some judges who want to see people in person, but I know from an efficiency standpoint for the lawyers, and that means for the clients, those paying by the hour especially, it could be cheaper, uh, it could be, it definitely would be more efficient. That said, I also miss seeing the lawyers at the courthouse. Nothing better than on a Monday morning or Friday morning to walk into a courtroom full of people and shake hands and say hello. Well, now we don't walk into a room full of anything, pretty much, uh, if you're in a business setting, and we don't shake hands um, and we say hello through masks. So we don't want to lose that interaction on the one hand. On the other hand, we got to figure out the efficiencies of it. And I do think that there are going to be trials that are conducted by Zoom um, going forward. And they may be bench trials. Uh, they may be jury trials by agreement. I don't know if our Supreme Court is ready to take the plunge and say that courts can order uh, jury trials without the party's consent. And that issue is up in front of the Texas Supreme Court right now. 
Randy, you mentioned that uh, uh, you were, uh, um, I'm not sure if you're immediate past state bar president, but you were the state bar president within the past couple of years. And I'd like to ask you a couple of questions about that experience. Uh, first of all, what was that experience for you? And what are two or three of your highlights from your year as state bar president? You know, I didn't plan to be state bar president. There, there was some disruption, I'll say, in the state bar world. And someone asked me to run because uh, there were some candidates who maybe had good name recognition that may not have had the the um, the bar in its best interest. In other words, maybe they wanted to do away with the bar. And I've heard all, all arguments, but what I can tell you that an organized bar where everyone belongs in the state provides a lot of services to the lawyers in that state at a cheaper rate than those who say you, we can have a voluntary bar. And so I believe uh, with my heart and with my wallet, and after I got into the weeds, uh, with my heart and my with my with my mind and my soul, uh, the mandatory bar of Texas is the best in the nation, and it needed to stay that way. When I say mandatory or unified, it means to be a lawyer here, you have to be a bar member. Now, of the 106,000 lawyers, the bar doesn't touch everybody on a daily basis, but it touches a lot of people. And my goal at the state bar was to make sure that that the lawyers of Texas had as many benefits as we could get as a 106,000 person organization to help us practice law and to help us be you know, better uh, family members or spouses or parents or children. And so we really focused on getting back to the basics, what can improve the lawyers' lives of Texas. And we went around the state, met a lot of people, and, and I think I was able to start this momentum and the president after me continued it and the current president is continuing it. And the next president elect, Laura Gibson from Houston, She's pledged to continue it as well. So it's definitely a lawyer first bar. Not that we aren't here to serve the public, but sometimes you have to take care of your own house before you can go and mow somebody else's yard. So I have worked uh, in the same house with my wife since March 13, uh, 2020. Um, And I absolutely love it. Uh, Frankly, I can't get enough of being around my wife, but you practice law with your wife. So I wanted to ask you, um, you know, what's it like practicing law with your wife? Well, she offices about uh, 15 feet away, and we probably, you know, use our voices as much as we use the phone. But we don't see each other that much unless we pass by each other's office. Today, you know, we're, we're doing this in the afternoon. I actually had lunch with her. It's a real treat. I hadn't had lunch with her in probably two weeks. Uh, and so it was nice. And I don't know that working to working. Before this, we had lunch once a month. So if we have it every two or three times a month, it's actually quite fun. We can catch up and see what's going on at home if we don't have time. But right now, because we're swamped, uh, she's working probably uh, seven, eight, nine hours a day, plus taking care of the household. So that's, you know, 13, 14, 15 hours. And I'm in the office by 6, uh, 6.30 every day. And if I leave by 6.30 or 7, it's probably an early day. Uh, partly because of this trial that you mentioned uh, that was the subject of a lot of a um, couple of mandamuses, and it's going to go now in October. It's a it's an important case to our clients, and we're going to give it the importance it deserves. So we're we're nose to the grindstone right now. Randy, did the last year of the coronavirus and COVID-19 health crisis 
changed your approach to the practice of law, perhaps setting aside the things that are mandatory in terms of court appearances or uh, virtual or in-person where you mask up? Has it really changed the, the practice of law, in your opinion? Well, the practice of law includes interaction with people. And that, of course, has changed for everybody. So that's that's kind of a given. It's allowed me to, uh, as I said, get in early and stay late and get more accomplished. And, you know, when you grow a firm, you, you're always hiring because you need someone, which means you're too busy. Well, we're at nine lawyers. We need someone else. And we're looking for that 10th person. And that just means we're too busy. And I'm not going to let clients go unattended to uh, at any time, but, but much less when we don't have enough lawyers. And I know I can do the work of a small car wreck or a major explosion death case. And I don't mind doing it. I love to do it. I think starting the practice, uh, our own practice has re-energized me and I don't mind doing it at all. That said, there are, you know, Zoom meetings, Zoom hearings, things at Zoom depositions, learning how to work technology to your advantage to become persuasive. Um, I listen to a lot more podcasts like yours People now can sit in their office and listen to podcasts uh, and learn at the same time that they're, you know, working on a brief or something like that. So I'm probably as best educated as I've been over the last since we started this eight months, eight and a half months ago, because I'm listening to the basics of the practice. How do you open IOLTA account? You know, both of my firms before they had IOLTA accounts. Um, how do you run a payroll? My wife's learned that she runs payroll. Dealing with human resources. You know, hiring people, um, tax ID numbers, bank accounts, trust accounts, you know, you name it. But I've enjoyed it and and uh, building form databases, keeping your old clients, developing new clients and getting your message out uh, in, a, in a hopefully respectful manner. We are not doing TV advertising or billboards. Uh, we are definitely geared towards uh, connecting with lawyers and and making sure, you know, if you send the case to us, you know that if you want me handling the case, I'll handle your case and you're going to get paid what we say you're going to get paid. And we many times allow the lawyer to say, you know, here's what I think is fair. And it's almost almost always fair. One time and, you know, we've just opened our probably 350th case now and this year, which is remarkable, never opened that many. One lawyer, you know, said something that uh, was probably not fair. And after I talked to him, he said, okay, I see your point and it became fair. So it's just, just great dealing with uh, professionals you like to work with. Randy, I was going to ask you about where law firms and lawyers needed to think about down the road. But now that I know you're on the board of South Texas College of Law, perhaps I'll change that to for a new law student. Uh, and I would also say South Texas is coming up on its 100th anniversary the oldest law firm in the city of Houston. Um, what would uh, you tell a, a young law student now to uh, try to do to position themselves uh, down the road for the practice of law? You know, I have a lot of conversations because people who are on the bubble often call me and say, can you help me get into law school? And things have changed over the last few decades at, 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 in college admissions, as we know, and law school admissions from the, I'll call it the, was it uh, Varsity Blues scandal? You know, uh, law schools and other uh, schools of higher education, they're not just taking the word of board members or big donors. And, and uh, you know, they vet each student. And so when they're on the bubble, 
you know, I often say I can put a good word in for you, but number one, I can't get you in. And number two, I can't take your finals. So for the first thing for law students is if you're not trying to be the best law student, you can be the first semester, which is a total of four months. You're doing yourself a disservice because you're limiting your options the rest of your career. You know, if you have great grades, you might be able to get to a Fulbright and Jaworski if you want to. Now it's called Norton Rose Fulbright. But and you don't have to, but at least you have that option. So uh, I have twins right now, both in law school. They're both starting their second year. And I, I encourage them from day one, start studying. Law students is the same way. You know, law school, pardon me, law, new lawyers is the same way. Law school is a grind. It's a, you know, a ton of hours a day. So once you come out of law school and become a new lawyer, uh, keep your keep your endurance up and, you know, work those 12 or 14 hours a day to understand the practice of law as quickly as you can and get the experience. And there's always time later in life to slow down. And I'm not saying you need to miss your family and, you know, have lose your health, but put um, build a strong foundation with your career early on. And, you know, when I've been doing it 34 years later, I'm still having as much or more fun than ever and still learning as much as ever. And that's the next thing is, is you never stop learning, you know, listen to things, read things. I just ordered two books from uh, AAJ, which is the Trial Lawyers National Organization. And they said just literally today and they said they'll be in in probably seven to 10 days. I'm like, oh, I hope they come sooner. I can't wait to start reading them. So, you know, have a an appetite for for learning and improving yourself. And then the last thing I'd say is there's a lot of ability to um, to boast about yourself. And there's nothing wrong with that. But be sure and bring other people up around you as well. You know, I talked about my wife's education and, you know, how she ranked at the top of her class and her clerkship. You know, talk about the doctors and the bilingual lawyer who, you know, came from a very modest background. Be sure and talk about others and bring them up as well. And that will serve you well throughout your career. Randy, unfortunately, we are near the end of our time for this episode, but I have a special bonus question for you. Uh, 20 plus years ago, you and I uh, were in a workout group called CLPT, and you extended that far beyond I did. Um, But uh, it, it was a very memorable experience for me. But I really wanted to ask you, what were some of your once again, two or three top remembrances or things you took away from your time at CLPT. Yeah, and so people don't know that CLPT, and you're you're an amazing athlete, Tom. The the idea behind it is is it's almost like a boot camp, as if you were going into the military, but it's ramped up a notch because as if you're going to go through the CLPT Bud program. So to get to the CLPT Bud program, you have to be uh, have a tough a physical exterior and a tough mental exterior. Well, the, the the founder of CLPT realized not everybody in the world of lawyers or doctors or plumbers or electricians or teachers is going to have a physical, top physical condition, but it doesn't mean you can't develop a top mental condition. So uh, he, ma- he made it his mission to get you in better shape physically, but to challenge you every minute of that hour or hour and a half mentally. And you and I both know that we've been screamed at and uh, uh, asked to do things that we would never do on our own. And for some reason, you know, a couple of educated guys like you and me will decide, sure, we'll get around and uh, roll around in the mud or in the swamp or in the sand. Um, and 
you know, somehow we feel good about ourselves, uh, you know, afterwards and then challenging yourself to do things that you didn't think you could do. And that goes true in the business world or the law world, too. You know, challenge yourself every day to improve. What's important? Like he said, uh, the only easy day was yesterday. You know, pain is uh, pain is uh, uh, what, what was the word? Pain is leaving the body. Uh, you probably remember that. Uh, you know, basically put yourself through pain and, and enjoy that. And then also put yourself in uncomfortable positions. Get out of your comfort zone. You know, talk to people in an elevator, things like that. Most people get in the elevator and they look at the lights. Well, talk to someone and say hello. That's something getting out of your comfort zone. Or go talk to a stranger at a networking event. Don't hang around with the people that you're closest to or your workmates. Go talk to strangers. Things like that people feel uncomfortable with, but he taught you. And he just passed away a couple of years ago. He taught you to do those things. Um, you know, it's just, it's just one of those things I wouldn't change. I did it for 20 years. And when the COVID came uh, came in, I actually developed a slight back injury and uh, haven't been out, but follow them. And I love his wife and the people who are part of the program. And there's not a better physical and mental conditioning program out there. Well, Randy, unfortunately, now we are at the end of the time for this episode, but I was wondering if our listeners wanted any more information on any of the matters we've touched upon in this podcast, or to find out more about you or the Sorrells Law Firm, where can they go? Sure. Sorrells is spelled S-O-R-R-E-L-S, so two R's, one L, and we're at www. Sorrells Law Firm. We do plaintiff's personal injury and business litigation, a lot on a contingency fee basis, medical malpractice and wrongful death. And we love to work with lawyers and, and others. And we're always honored if we're, we're hired and, and really want to, uh, to try to do our best with each client to give them a good experience. Randy, uh, I can't tell you how much I've enjoyed doing this. I've wanted to do it for a long time. And I hope that it may be in the future, uh, after another big case or two, I might be able to call upon you again. All right. Well, that's good. I'm going to ask you one thing. Give me a quick story about CLPT you remember. Uh, I, I love the physical challenge. I just, uh, I just, that's the way I was brought up. I was always Joe Jock. And, uh, when I could still work out at that level, I did. Uh, but the mental part was the thing that I learned as well. And I thought I knew mental toughness and I thought I played through pain. Uh, but, uh, Jack really taught me that it's, it's a mindset that you don't have to limit to when you're physically working out. It's a mindset that you can take with you, uh, honor, uh, telling the truth, and being a stand-up guy uh, just for things that you can do all the time every day. Yeah, I agree. Amen to that. All good words. Well, thank you so much for having me on, on the show. This is Tom Fox. Thank you for listening. I hope you will check out the latest podcast in the Compliance Podcast Network, Effing Argentina, which is a tale of, or 11 tales of exasperation from the book by Greg Greenberg. Greg joins me for an exploration of exasperation in America circa 2021 in Effing Argentina. The FCPA Compliance Report is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.